0: Cheers. Cheers. We're in a fancy <laughs> podcast studio drinking fancy wine. I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and today we have a very special wine-drenched version of Fifth and When I first came to the Chronicle, one of the most astounding things to me was that we had a 10,000-bottle wine cellar. Wine criticism has always been a key part of our coverage, and for the last few years, it's been led by Esther Mobley. She's one of the best wine writers in America and also the first of our writers to bring a spit bucket into our recording studio. We'll talk about drinking for a living, finding the news in the vineyards, and the proper way to sample wine, coming up next on Fifth and Mission. Esther Mobley, welcome to Fifth Mission. Hey, Audrey. This is going to be one of our fun episodes. Like, so before we talk about housing and homelessness, today we're going to talk about wine and the role of a wine critic and wine writer at the Chronicle. So, how long how long have you been here now?
1: 4 years.
0: Oh, it doesn't seem like that long. It seems like you've been here forever. And how do you become a wine writer for the Chronicle?
1: Well, or for anywhere you it it requires a lot of drinking, and, as we'll discuss today, spitting. <laughs> yes, spitting is important too.
0: But like what did you have an interest in writing and wine before you came to the Chronicle?
1: I yes. Uh, basically, i had I had separate interests in writing and in wine, and I was lucky enough to figure out a way to combine them into a job. I was an English major, I always wanted to be a writer. And after college, I ended up kind of bumming around uh, for a little while working the harvest season at a couple of wineries. So once I figured out that you can get a job for like five to six months, um, working in vineyards, crushing grapes, tasting, learning the business, being outside, 21-year-old me just said, sign me up. And I worked uh, harvest in Napa Valley. I worked in Argentina. And eventually after um, a couple other odd jobs related to wine, I started working at wine magazines and I worked at two different wine magazines in New York before I came to work at the Chronicle.
0: So let's talk about like what you do here at the Chronicle. So wine, I don't know that everybody knows this, is California's number one agricultural product in that value. Yeah, yeah, and value. And so so it's an important part of our economy, but it's also a huge part of, I think, what makes us Northern Californians. Like, it's a huge part of our culture, too. So so how do you think about, like, wh- what do you decide to write about? Because you could just write about wines and which ones you like all day, but that's, that's only the smallest fraction of what you do here.
1: I wear a few different hats. Um, my title is Wine Critic, and I do... Do some of that, saying what wines are good and what wines are bad, and that tends to manifest in things like every year I name a winemaker of the year and winemakers to watch, and in my weekly email newsletter, Drinking with Esther, I recommend a wine that I think is good. But um, I'm also very much a news reporter here, and just like any other beat reporter covering an industry uh, subject, I cover the wine industry and. That ends up spanning everything from business news, we have a lot of big mergers and acquisitions in the industry, I was a big part of our wildfire coverage in 2017, to um, just writing features about interesting players, profiles, things like that, so... I think I have one of the most fun jobs at The Chronicle, not only because it comes with booze, but (laughs) because I get to do so many different types of stories all the time.
0: Yeah, you do. So let's talk about one that you're working on right now that by the time this podcast comes out, it will have already been published on sfchronicle.com. And that's one that takes a look at the role global warming plays in this really important industry. You want to talk about what
1: you found? It's no question that global warming is already impacting the wine industry around the world and will continue to. Um, Rising temperatures are one part of it. But of course, when you think about other effects of climate change from drought to wildfire to erratic heat spikes, those all have a drastic impact on wine quality. And since wine is such a huge part of California's economy, um, it's a really big question. It needs to be a really big question how it's going to affect wine here. So there's a lot of different wine grapes that grow around the world, and they all have kind of sweet spots in terms of temperature and climate. Um, you can't grow Riesling in a super, super warm climate. It wants cool cooler climates. Um, and there's, for example, and there's all sorts of restrictions on what can grow where. So right now in Napa Valley, for instance, the the most famous grape, the most widely planted grape, the grape that really fuels that entire county's life is Cabernet Sauvignon. And uh, I've been talking to a number of wineries who really believe that the lifespan of Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa is only maybe about 30 more years. That within 30 more years, at least the version of Cabernet that exists right now isn't really going to be tenable anymore. Um, climate is just going to completely shift what it tastes like. So um, the the industry as a whole isn't doing that much right now, according to some people. And so I'm, I'm writing about a couple of different wineries that are kind of taking things into their own hands from an R&D perspective and planting experimental vineyards to see what types of grapes might be able to replace Cabernet. Well, that's, I mean,
0: the idea that Napa may soon not be a great place to go grow cab is like, I don't know, that's like saying you shouldn't film movies in L.A. anymore or, you know, the Giants shouldn't be at AT&T Park or like whatever. That just is so crazy yeah. to even think about those two things being not tied together anymore. But it's also, I mean, I i, I can kind of understand why somebody who owns a lot of very expensive vines in Napa would be loath to rip them out and start experimenting when you're a few decades away. So how are they? How are they looking at that? Because it's it's not cheap to p- plant a grapevine in Napa.
1: It's not cheap, and the opportunity cost for t- right now, I mean, to not plant. Cabernet is huge because you can ultimately charge so much more for Cabernet grapes and wine than for any other grape. So the protagonist of this story is Larkmead Vineyards in Calistoga, which is the hottest end of Napa Valley. And Cabernet Sauvignon accounts for more than 70% of what they grow. They're a historic site. They've had grapes there since the 1800s. And they've now designated three acres of their 100-acre property. So it's small for now. Um, where they're planting a mix of kind of old heritage California grapes, things like Zinfandel, Petit Syrah, Charbonneau, things that grew well in California in the 19th century, and also uh, Mediterranean climate grapes that do well in warm parts of Portugal, Italy, and Spain, things like Toriga Nacional and uh, Tempranillo, the grape uh, grown in Rioja. Um, So the idea, they're thinking, is, Maybe Cabernet is not going to go away entirely in Napa Valley, but what if we kind of need to add something like Tempranillo that's going to thrive better in a warmer climate in Calistoga 20, 30 years from now to blend in with Cabernet to maintain what Larkmead Cabernet tastes like now? How can we kind of keep that profile going in the future because Cabernet on its own isn't going to do it? That's really interesting. So, you know, speaking about Napa Valley, another thing
0: that you've been really instrumental in doing here is helping us do more ratings, not not of wines, but of wineries and tasting room experiences, because that's I, I think you would know this better. But two thirds of the people who visit wine country are from the greater Bay Area, or maybe it's even three fourths. So yeah,
1: I think it's around there.
0: It's it's a pastime of ours to go up um, and, and do that. So Talk to us about, like, some of your favorite tasting rooms that you've been to recently and what you think
1: makes a good tasting room experience. What uh, the tasting room of the Bay Area is is um, really in an interesting moment of flux. So we, in addition to all the wine coverage we publish on sfchronicle.com, we have a separate sub site for wine called The Press, which we started about three years ago. And that's where we provide um, really service-driven information about where to go wine tasting throughout California. We have reviews of tasting rooms and itineraries of suggested places to go that span from Santa Barbara County now up to Mendocino County and um, into parts of the Sierra foothills. Um, And we do that because we We saw a real lack of that kind of information on the Internet. There's a lot of things like Yelp with uh, the kind of populist. Everyone raises their hand to say they think their pour of wine was a little too stingy. Um, But there was nothing really sophisticated digitally from an editorial outlet with the clout of ours. Um, So as part of that, I visit a lot of tasting rooms and approach them as um, our restaurant critic Soleil would approach visiting a restaurant. I go anonymously. I don't advertise who I am. We pay our own way. um, We're not looking to get freebies. We want to get the real experience as a guest any person would get. And last week, I published a review of a brand new tasting room in Healdsburg for Flowers Winery. That's a winery. I like that wine. Yeah. I was
0: really excited. I just read that before we came in here. It's very interesting what they're doing there.
1: Yeah. Flowers has been around for a while, but this is its first tasting room. And um, it really signaled to me... That a new model of tasting room seems to have arrived. Um, the first tasting room I visited that I would say fit this mold is the place called Scribe that's in Sonoma Valley. And it's a really kind of it's a, the kind of tasting room, not where you're trying to go up to a bar, stick your glass out, you know, have a sip and then walk around by yourself. This is a place you're paying a little more, you're sitting down, you're in a beautiful setting. It's kind of begging for Instagram shots. It's the millennials winery. Yeah. yeah.
0: I haven't been, because I feel like I'm too old to go there. But You maybe are not too old to okay, go there. good, thank
1: you. <laughs> but it's really attracting a new group of wine drinkers to wine country that hasn't really been that interested in visiting wine country, because they feel like it's the kind of thing their parents do. So, um, Flowers and a number of other wineries that have opened in the the several years since Scribe opened seem to be following this model. The idea is you're going to come, you're going to spend a while there, you're going to have some beautiful food, you're going to be in this gorgeous setting... Your tasting room attendant actually like sits down with you and chats with you and you feel like you've made a new cool friend while you're there. The Flowers Wines are beautiful. They're Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from really far coastal, like just about as close as you can get to the Pacific Ocean vineyards. And um, I think it's a really interesting thing. It's it's not designed for um, quick, efficient tasting. But um, it's, I think, a new, interesting experience and one that I hope encourages people to actually learn a little bit more about what they're drinking. Awesome. That is a
0: very good segue. Now let's talk about (laughs) the consumer aspect of this. You do not give ratings of wine. Um, The 100-point wine scale is pretty infamous, I think, around wine lovers. Um, What are your feelings about wine ratings?
1: I used to work, before I came to the Chronicle, at Wine Spectator magazine, which is one of the major practitioners of the 100-point wine scale. And when I was there, I uh, really believed in it and understood its value, and I I still really understand its value. Um, It's not something I feel aligned with now. But I think what a lot of people forget about the 100-point wine rating scale is that when Robert Parker pioneered it in the 1970s, it was really born out of this amazing consumer first impulse. His hero was Ralph Nader. He wanted to bring democracy and accessibility to the world of wine, which at the time was neither democratic nor accessible. And his idea was basically, what's a scale that every American intimately understands? one that they've been graded on themselves since they were kids. And that's the 100-point scale. So you didn't have to know a thing about wine, but you knew what a 92 meant, and suddenly you could have some sense of autonomy in choosing what to buy. I love the 100-point scale for that. I love that spirit. And I think the wave of publications that really rose alongside the 100-point scale in the 80s, such as Wine Spectator, We're doing a really good thing for people. But in 2019, we have so much more information available at our fingertips. You no longer need to look in the buying guide of a magazine. There's the opportunity to get so much more nuanced, interesting, complex information about any wine in a second at your fingertips. And I think the 100-point scale in the context of the internet today is unnecessarily reductive.
0: The, I, I, I think there's also a complaint to be made, though, that um, wines are better now than they were in the 70s, too. I mean, you can get more better wine, I feel like, than you could 40 years ago or so, when the best wines might be French, and those were very um, unapproachable, and like California is trying to find its footing a little bit, and now we
1: have a lot better wines. That's an excellent point. Um, There's no question that the kind of baseline for wine around the world has risen extraordinarily over the last few decades. And I think Robert Parker and Wine Spectator and the 100 Pointers really had a lot to do with that in, in driving wine quality. So absolutely, if the marker back then was like, is this wine riddled with bacterial faults? Should I buy it? That's not really as much of a relevant question now. You're going to walk into BevMo or k or any one of our other amazing wine shops here and be confident that every wine in there is at least sound. And so what makes one wine worth buying over the other is even more complicated and even more of a kind of personalized decision. Um, and then the other reason why I don't want to do wine ratings is just selfishly I have so much more fun being out there, actually reporting, um, meeting people in the flesh, seeing vineyards, um, then I would if I were locked in a room all day, tasting wine out of brown paper bags and writing down numbers, well, speaking <laughs> of being
0: locked in a room <laughs> with bottles of wine, you very smartly brought two bottles of wine to share with your editor and and king our our audio <laughs> producer. um you brought us very fancy glasses um King has a blue sippy cup, like it's a frat party, <laughs> but, but that's okay, it will probably taste the same. So what I want you to do is. If everybody asks you, do you just drink wine all day? And you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, no, I I spit. What does that mean? How should we taste this bottle of wine? Which is in a very fancy glass. Yeah, all right. yeah. So yeah. that's number well, one. We're in a, cheers. Cheers. We're in a fancy
1: <laughs> podcast studio drinking fancy wine. What is this in our glass? Okay, so um, this wine in our glass right now is from Bedrock Wine Company. It's called their Cuvee Caritas, and it's a white wine. It's from uh, the Monte Rosso Vineyard, which was the subject of a recent column of mine, a vineyard planted in the 1880s up on Moon Mountain in Sonoma Valley. The winemaker, Morgan Twain Peterson, was a one-time Chronicle Winemaker of the Year um, and kind of a specialist in working with old vines. Um, The wine is primarily Semillon, a white grape you don't see that often in California. It's mostly a white grape grown in Bordeaux. But okay, so here's... Here's basically how I approach tasting wine and how I would recommend that our readers do. Um, You're swirling I'm it. Swirling a lot. it.
0: This scares a lot of people, you know, the swirling, swirling of glasses. Is,
1: yeah, swirling. Um, it looks really intimidating. It's a lot harder to do in the air. That comes with practice than if you just set it down. There's really a reason for that. You're actually releasing volatile compounds that you will then be able to smell. And the thing I always tell people is. Um, At first, even just put your hand over the mouth of the glass and swirl it. That traps the compounds in there. A lot of the compounds that smell are actually called esters. Although my parents had no idea when they were naming me that this would be my chosen career. Um, And I think you get a a more potent aroma when you do that. Um, So smelling is the most important part of wine tasting. Your nose is capable of smelling a lot more than your mouth is capable of tasting. So take your time smelling it. This is the part where I'm really
0: bad about naming what I smell. (laughs) My husband is like a savant at it. He's really good, but I I can't ever name what I'm smelling.
1: It becomes a bit of a silly thing to just like uh, name every single fruit in the pears. Yeah, I get a little pear. Ah, I won. I get a kind of, yeah, pear <laughs> for sure. I get a kind of jasmine. There's, it's definitely a floral nose. And there's even a bit of like a honeyed aspect, which is unusual in a wine as young as this. Hmm. This is a 16. Okay, so maybe it's not super young.
0: All right. So after we we smell it a lot, when a lot. do we get to try it?
1: Well, now. Okay. Now's the moment.
0: That That was was the sound of Esther's spitting. (laughs) (laughs) I swallowed it because I have a lot of meetings after this that I could probably use the help with, but okay, I'll I'll spit too.
1: So, the thing, uh, well, there's a lot you can taste in a wine, but um, the thing to really think about when you're tasting a wine is um, structure. You're not necessarily going to be able to taste every single, as we said, like uh, fruit tree in the orchard, but just noticing, Does this do anything as it moves across my mouth? Does it get held up anywhere? Um, In a white wine, the thing we really look for is acidity and i have those little acid glands going crazy right now exactly like if you were to bite into a piece of citrus fruit right so um i when i'm trying to really pay attention to a wine's acidity i like to let it linger on the sides of my tongue that's exactly where i think you're probably getting that and um that little that can exacerbate that in a Useful way. You mean when you aerate
0: it in your own mouth. Exactly. So when people go and see uh, fancy-looking people swishing wine around their mouth and things, that's actually not bad manners. That's no, that's good.
1: That's good. That's helpful. Um, and then the other thing is, um, I'm always looking to see if a wine's alcohol is in balance. I don't want the alcohol to stand out. I don't want it to taste like I just took a shot of liquor. Basically, yeah, unless that's... I have a lot of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, this one does not taste like that at no, all. No, this one the alcohol is really imbalanced, and the the place where I'm always looking out for that heat is um, as I swallow or on the finish. Even if you spit, you can still get it there. Um, let's taste this red wine because See, then... this is
0: how this is. You still had a bunch left in your glass, and <laughs> mine was empty, which is why you are a professional and I am a mere
1: amateur at wine tasting. <laughs> I should not do it for a living. When when your job involves wine tasting almost every day, the novelty of like getting to drink during the middle of the day gets completely worn out. All right. So
0: what is – this is – before the podcast, we were talking about how this is, I think, my favorite grape varietal.
1: Cabernet Franc. Yes. Um, So Cabernet Franc is the genetic parent of Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc were bred – Once Upon a Time to Create Cabernet Sauvignon. This is um, from winemaker Ian Brand, who was our winemaker of the year in 2018. So red wine um, allows us to talk about something we couldn't really talk about with white wine, which is tannin. Oh, yes. Explain what is a tannin. Tannin is a a polyphenolic compound, a molecule in wine. You
0: took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) polyphanatic. I don't even know what you said. What what does
1: it taste like? What does it feel like? Tannins are texture, essentially, in wine. Um, a really tannic wine will feel really astringent. There's tannins in a lot of things we consume. If you ever oversteep black tea and then it, it tastes really astringent, those are tannins. A lot of fruit skin has tannins. You ever bite into the wrong kind of persimmon accidentally and you get... I hate it when that happens.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I always think of the tannins as like when I need to like brush my tongue like it gets all thick and chalky like that's a lot of tannins exactly tannins also um, lengthen and smooth out over time too right so if you you can have tannins that aren't
1: jarring tannins are the the kind of major change that happens as a wine ages so a lot of the most age-worthy wines in the world you think of something like barolo from italy when it's young, it's almost undrinkable because of its tannins. Its tannins are so aggressive. One sip and your mouth is just dried out. But over time, they soften, they grow mellower, and they become kind of silky and supple. And it tastes really good. <laughs> so what
0: do you what do you smell in this wine that you're swirling around your fancy glass?
1: So the, the thing I always look for when I taste Cabernet Franc is does it have this kind of peppery green um, aroma? And um, that's a thing called a pyrazine. Another compound. And I get that really subtly here in a way that I think is nice. And I would I would describe the nose as herbal, but it's not like um, biting into a jalapeno pepper. It's more in a kind of maybe a sage family of herbal. Do you get anything like that? Yeah, I was definitely going to say something green, but I'm sometimes
0: reluctant to say that because green can be a negative thing sometimes, too. And I don't want to be offensive to our former winemaker of the year. No.
1: Well, if they're offended, then that's their problem. But it's true. um, The presence of green flavors in Cab can be um, can be a point of controversy. But I think, Ian, this particular winemaker takes some pride in it. Okay, so now I'm going to taste it. So the, the place I always tell people to look out for tannins is on their gums. And if you really let a wine rest on your gums, kind of slurp it around there, and you get this fuzzy feeling, that's tannin. And then you, the challenge is to kind of try to describe the quality of that. Um, this is not an extremely tannic wine. This isn't like drying your mouth out like you need to take a sip of water. But there's a kind of light, um, supple, tannin quality to it that I think will let it age for at least a few years. Awesome.
0: I'm going to continue to swallow this wine so <laughs> as to not ruin the audio. The last question I have for you, Esther, what is the best wine you've ever had? mm I asked her when she has a mouth full of wine. I
1: swallowed that. (laughs) Um, I thought so much. You warned me you were going to ask me this question. And it's so hard. It's like I've tasted so many great wines in my life. And this is going to be a really obnoxious answer because even I will never be able to buy or acquire or probably ever taste again this wine. But a few years ago, I was in Burgundy. And it was like this incredible pilgrimage for me. Um, And I visited a winery called Georges de Vogueway. And out of barrel, I didn't even taste it out of a bottle. It was a young wine out of barrel from a vineyard called Les Amaroos. It's a famous vineyard in Burgundy. Um, I'd heard about this wine, this vineyard. This is like a 500-year-old winery that's been in the same family the whole time. And it was about 8 o'clock in the morning, France time. Who knows what time it was in my internal clock? It was cold. I was in this dank cellar. It was like very drafty. And this French man who I cannot communicate with is taking wine out of this barrel with the little glass thief and putting it in a glass for me. And I think that was the best wine I've ever had in my life.
0: I mean, it just goes to show that sometimes the most important thing is where you are in the circumstances, almost more than the wine itself. Yes. Esther, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for bringing the wine with you. And you um, are welcome back every day of the week. (laughs) Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you to Esther Mobley for being with us today today. Thank you to our producers, Karen Creighton and King Kaufman. And thanks to all of you who listened. You can sign up for Esther's newsletters by going to www.sfchronicle.com newsletters. Fifth Emission Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network.
1: If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing.
1: You can support 5th and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle.
0: There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.